Konnichiwa, it's Zach Langley Chichi. I'm so popular and so sick with a sinus infection, but that won't stop me from bringing on an amazing guest today to talk about Kon Satoshi's filmography and identity. Who are you? Well, hello. My name's Fella, or Swift Zeros, in uh, terms of username, but I'm glad to be here tonight. Well, I guess Hi, morning King. for you. What Hi. are you doing? I'm just here in my room. I got a one of the new fancy bang seltzer drinks. You know, talk of Twitter, I guess. What are these? So, have you heard of Bang Energy like drinks yeah, before? Yeah. So they made their they own. They used heart. to be like really popular at like anime conventions. I think. Yeah. So they made their own hard hard seltzer. Hmm. So like they are dropping them this uh, summer and I was at a gas station and I saw them. I was like, I have to try this because uh, I drink bang religiously before I go work out. And because I'm only fueled on caffeine and nicotine at this point. So I'm having <laughs> I'm having one right now, a pina colada flavor, and it's pretty good, actually. Love it. And why do you follow me? Um, if I remember correctly, I saw your old profile picture, like floating around people that I followed a lot in mm -hmm. sort of the perfume nationalist circle. And then I remember Jack retweeted the post you made about selling your soul to make a Twitter page for the podcast. And so I was like, okay, I'll look at this page and I see drag queen in Japan and then podcast. I was like, okay, I have to check this out. And so I listened to the first episode with Miku, and uh, as soon as I listened to it, I hear the the map theme, the knock, and I was like, okay, this person has taste. And so, <laughs> uh, and so then I listened to it all, and I had a blast. And I remember, I remember uh, adding you and saying, "Is this Nocturne music?" And then you like said, "Yes, you're the first one to get it right." I'm like, okay, I'm in. Yes, I love that. I. I think I am so obsessed with your Twitter presence as well because you have amazing taste in Japanese culture and video games, like lit, movies, everything. And it's been really delightful finding someone who is like on such a similar level about like art and media. Like you're one of the few people who has like sung the praises of The Last of Us Part Two correctly. Mm -hmm. And... You stand Charlie XCX, which I find <laughs> really cute. Because I imagine you going to the gym, like, in those beautiful selfies you post, just, like, playing, like, <laughs> Charlie XCX on it. Blasting vroom vroom at 100%, losing my mind. Yes. Uh... <laughs> but, yeah, like, I just, for, I don't know, whatever reason, like, there's just, like, certain media where you can, like, you can, like, sense inside yourself that, like, it has, there's, like, something to it that you can really enjoy and i will say like the last year i've had sort of like a a return to like enjoying and discovering things that like i would have never have heard of or sought after like and i i attribute that to the perfume nationalists like what they do is incredible and because i remember i went to college for to work in film and television and i i remember like i was in high school and I had a friend in study hall where we would, we would just get together for an hour and we would just talk about like, oh, have you seen this movie? And then we would like joke about it or talk about a game we're playing and, you know, all like this back and forth and like this genuine excitement. And then I got to college 
And like, I would literally, because when I got to college, I didn't have a car. So I would actually bike to the Walmart in town to get like a movie. Like I would buy from the bargain bin or something new, like, and it didn't have to be anything great. It's just like, I wanted to like absorb it all. Like, yeah taken everything I can like even if I never touch it for five years six years whatever it might be it like at least I own it and I can like at least enjoy it at some point and you know this last year at the end of college I really sort of had this tailspin where I really didn't enjoy like wanting to like seek things out I would only buy like a movie once or twice a year I would only go to the movie theaters like once when like at the start of college, I would literally like every weekend when I wasn't playing football, um, I would literally go to a movie theater like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50, like wherever it might be just to see something. Mm-hmm. But by the end of college, I was like, I don't want to see anything. Nothing excites me because college had like sort of beaten that sort of joy out of me of like discovering things, whether it be something old or something new. Like I just felt this invisible hammer, just like trying to beat the shit out of me in a way. Yeah. I had the same experience with reading because I was, you know, an English major in college, but the academic approach to literature made me end up like detest so much of what I would honestly have cared about otherwise. And I barely read any fiction for myself or like, honestly, even much of the work assigned to me while I was an undergraduate. And it was only, like, after I finished and started, like, getting reacquainted with the joy of discovering and internalizing art that I was able to start reading again. Mm -hmm. And that happened with me, too, in the sense of, I remember specifically um, getting the movie safe and, like, like, hearing every what everyone said about it I was like okay I'm gonna sit down and watch this and I remember I put it the movie on and I watched it and I quite literally was one of the few experiences I had where I'm like looking at the tv and I can't move eyes away like there's something to it that was bigger than itself that I just like could not like even if I was something fell on the floor like I leaned over but I'm keeping my like eye level to the TV. I have to, I can't miss a single bit of this movie. And I hadn't experienced a sensation like that since arguably when I went and saw nocturnal animals in theaters, like I didn't have like a visceral experience of something because, you know, at least at my school in Ohio, uh, the teachers and the professors, when they talked about films was this like, like surgical manner and this sort of, uh, committee approved way of viewing things and you know you couldn't let yourself like be emotionally or like just wholeheartedly moved by a movie and I was just watching safe and I just felt like literally you know a truck had hit me and I was like and I start I literally started crying after it it was that much of a moving experience I was like I I felt as though I had to quote uh people on Twitter I've returned (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's beautiful i i think it that's the the only good appeal of art honestly and like why i care so much about it is because of that emotional reaction and you know putting a movie or 
a book or something in front of you and trying to like pick it apart to say something about culture more broadly or whatever is just so uninteresting to me when you can just talk about how it makes you feel. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of also why um, lately there's been a lot of chat about philosophy on my show and I like can't abide it anymore. Like I need to take a break of like talking about philosophy with women. So I'm really <laughs> happy to have a gay on the show to talk about <laughs> anime with. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not alone. Like anytime I hear philosophy, I, you you know how I joke about how like football made me like legitimately retarded. And anytime I hear like philosophy discussion, I'm like. I can hear the static in my brain just turning on. I'm like, okay, you, you keep talking. I'm, I'll, I'll smile and nod. The OJ tone turns on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I love philosophy. I've been talking about it enough. I love philosophy for some points. I'm happy to discuss some of it, but today is a return for the show and i'm very happy you're here to do that with me <laughs> I, i'm i'm very glad to be here yeah so before we get into the filmography of kon satoshi uh one of my favorite directors i thought we would talk a little bit about identity ooh ooh identity <laughs> i'm not even sure where to begin but i guess you could say that Currently, identity and how you project it to others is one of, like, the most important forms of social capital. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember when I was in high school, at that time, it was still kind of, like, a faux pas or bizarre to, like, really obsessively push your identity or to like kind of make it like the touchstone of who you are as a person and then progressively as I got deeper into my career in college and it all started kind of like solidifying into one's like racial identity or sexual identity or like gender identity becoming the most important thing you can express about yourself. Yeah, I agree. Like, when you're younger, like, you know, they always say, like, when you're a teen, it's like you're finding yourself. You got to sort of, you know, take the bruises and learn about, you know, how people operate when you're, like, in high school or something. And when you're in mm -hmm. college, it's like you're you're flooded with the sort of these outside ideas that you, like, wouldn't have heard about. You know, obviously, like, college nowadays is, you know, different, I guess you could say. But you're still, you're, like, you, you're taken out of like your little bubble and where you grew up and now you're put in a new one and you you realize that you don't have like your safety nets that you had when you were like you know 15 16 or whatever like now you're this like new person with a group of like you know in some cases like tens of thousands of new people and you're just like you're forced on the spot to like figure out like what what am I like what what will people know about me if they like came up to me at a class and said like, Hey, how are you? You know, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? Like that sort of stuff. Yeah. You realize that like the identity that you've been like forming when you were younger is now like put on a pedestal and you have to like 
<laughs> almost like sell yourself to people. And I feel like, like you said, you're only now cognizant of who you are from people outside of you. Like you're, you're learning about, you know, what this person thinks of me, what this person, like you're only becoming now cognizant because you don't have like your childhood friends, you don't have your parents, you know, all your family. Now it's all you by yourself. Mm, that's exactly true. And that's why I think there's sort of a crisis going on culturally now where because people are in that like vulnerable position and they have to project something of themselves onto others, like the easiest thing to choose to present, I think, is, you know, a identity of oppression or like a marginalized identity or like kind of admitting a weakness immediately or like a a sort of like damaged social position um, because it gives you like credit or like leeway socially. So lately I find that everyone's immediate hurry is to, you know, forge an identity that's like based off of like older like notions of these like cultures that they may or may not even be a part of. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Like, what you're saying about, like, sort of grievances, like, the thing that comes to my mind is how people, it's almost like sort of a, like, a parasitic thing. It's like, if I tell you, like, oh, this is the oppression that I experienced, and the, you're sort of, like, demanding that the person you're talking to, like, feels bad for you, and it's, like, an easy way to get sympathy. And so yeah. people just sort of, they can think of every oppression that has like, you know, wounded them throughout life. And just like, it becomes a weird sob story that like, you know, it'll, it's such a fucked up way to me, at least it's, you suddenly become like this statue of like everything society or everything people have done to you and people like, they can't, they can't like help, but feel bad for you. And like, so they have to reward you for being tough in these trying times or something. Yeah. And that's the, most disturbing thing is because when you want to culturally immediately go to that place, it's like you're forsaking any interesting thing you could do with identity in favor of uh, putting yourself like in this like flagellated and kind of like pathetic role. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I, like an example I know of is because, you know, I, I feel like I'm the one person that can speak about this in this circle is like, I, I was a college athlete. I played football and mm -hmm. being a, 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 a homosexual in the locker room, like you you see all these like news stories about like, oh, this kid finally came out of the closet and he's here to tell us everything, his struggles about everything. And to me at the time, I was just like, okay, like to in my viewpoint, it's just like, well, you're making yourself a distraction you want people outside of the team to like love you because you said you were gay. Like, okay. Like in, in my view, and I still have this view, it's like your main important role as a, you know, as an athlete is you're trying to help the team. And if you're mm -hmm. not helping the team, if you're making about yourself, then what are you really, what are you really trying to do? Like, are you trying to start something for yourself? Like, are you not a good player? So you're like, wanting people to like just give you sympathy points and like uh like kickstart your career post-college because like a lot of these people 
when they come out, they don't make it to like the pros. Like there's a very, at least in terms of, you know, people who say they are gay and they earn the pros, you know, a lot of these kids are in college and they, you know, they come out and then, you know, they don't do anything. They just kind of fade out. Once they graduate, they just kind of go about their lives. And it feels like a weird way to like gain capital because you can like weaponize like sort of an oppression that like people have told you about. Yeah, I obviously know about nothing <laughs> when it comes to football. <laughs> but I do remember there was like a, that one player who came out and it was like a big deal. What's his I'm name? Like Michael Sam, I think. Yeah, that's it. And then there was a, a lot of kerfluffle about if he uh, hadn't been put on a team because of his sexuality or because he wasn't like good enough as a football player. <laughs> Yeah, and the thing is, is about him is like he was a good player, but in college, like when, mm -hmm. like, pro, like with, I'll spare the like sort of nitty gritty about professional stuff, but like when the pro professional teams like look at you as a prospect, they're like, all right, what what can he do really well? Here's his weaknesses, and for a lot of teams, they're just like, he's good, like he's clearly got talent, but he's not like meeting our threshold of wanting to be like a starter or a key player on the team. And so like the media just is like parading this like thing of him, like, Oh my God, he kissed his boyfriend when he got drafted. Oh, he's, you know, making a stand and he's like enduring all these hardships. And I'm just like, he's not going to amount to anything. He's just mm -hmm. using this as a means to like get screen time. And like his boyfriend at the time was like this, he looked like a, what's the skier name that was on drag race that like oh that guy the yeah like whatever yep michael sam's boyfriend looked the almost if i remember looked like almost exactly like him and i was just like oh no like i could even then when i wasn't aware of it i was just like this i i, I smelled the stunt you <laughs> i mean it seems to me that in you know my experience in in japan which is like more of a collective society and like not as based off the individual and in the same setting as like a football team or like an organization that's like comes together to achieve a certain goal like insisting upon identity becomes like sort of like worthless and nobody gives you extra points for it like especially in japan it's like nobody really gives you like extra like brownie points for taking a certain identity or anything and i i think that's mostly because like the social order is like more about the collective goal as opposed to like the individual which is like the same in a sports team for instance yeah i agree with that like it's just this weird sort of like it, it's like wanting to make it all about yourself and like just like they like people just know like if you go to the media and say like oh this is the grievances that like society placed upon me and it's just like they give you like you know the cash prize and it's like oh man you're so brave you're so brave we're we're, we're rooting for you the, all the way you can do it girl and I'm like oh no like I don't know. like that's just like for me like I grew up on the sort of like you're you're your actions speak louder than like, you know, your words. And I always was about that. Even when I was in sports, like I wanted to prove to people that like, 
I could play and all that stuff. And even outside of it now, like at my job, like I want to prove to them, like, Hey, I can, if you give me something to do, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be like bitching and moaning about it, making about, Oh man, I, my, my injury that like prevents me from walking in shoes all this time, you know, <laughs> isn't it just hard for me? And I'm just like, no, just do your fucking job, you know? And like, you just go, you go online nowadays and it's just like this never ending parade of people who want literally just like these like digital brownie points. And it's like staring into the void of like this black, this black hole of nothingness. And I'm just like, it's terrifying at some points. It is. The internet is such a forum for creating an identity or, and like presenting it to people so it is like sort of the ultimate way that you can see like how identity has been stratified into this really bizarre form of like social currency and Mm -hmm. it's like people who put like white in their twitter bios now that's a thing yeah and it's like i actually read like a sometimes i still get like an angry like, social justice tweets, like, pop up from my college era, and, like, (laughs) I saw one woman who was, like, demanding, it was, like, if you are white, you have to put it in your bio so that we know, and, like, you can, you can't, like, come into, like, spaces of color, and, like, we know that you're not, like, uh, lying about your race, so. Oh, my, oh, dear Lord, help, help us all. (laughs) And I mean, all of this, like, apology like apologies to stuff around identity or like immediately presenting yourself as an item that's uh sort of like pathetic and and beaten on is quite tragic because i actually think that like there is strength and like artistic integrity to having a strong identity and one that you like force down everyone's throats like obviously that's what i'm doing like my podcast (laughs) is just like it's just like a little simulacrum of me that is extremely loud and uh, navel-gazing and presumptuous, but you can kind of, like, engage in this old form of, like, gay art or, like, poetry or all of these, like, creators who were able to, like, turn their identity, like, into an artistic statement. Like, I think of Mishima, for instance, and it's, like, you know, my podcast isn't exactly, like, it's not exactly, like, <laughs> so my, my shield group, but nonetheless. You're, you're, you're telling me you're not Mishma, okay? <laughs> not not quite. Not, we're not there yet. No, I mean, I'll never be able to go to the gym, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, because isn't, like, Japan, like, the gym prices are, like, $100 or something? I mean, I could probably go. Uh, I have tattoos, which makes it mm-hmm. kind of hard. They don't like that, but. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's more a problem of i don't like going to the gym (laughs) that's that's fair no i understand that yes i'll never be mishima that way but at least i can you know use like my podcast as a way to turn my identity and my uh life into one large piece of dumb gay art yeah and i i think that separates like people like you or like you know jack and orton or you know the Mm -hmm. topics boys is it's not sort of they're not using their their uh their identity as a means to uh demand that you like them they're not you're not they're like you guys are not demanding people to appreciate who you are simply because like well this is like all the hardships we have had to face or this is 
this is who I am and you're supposed to like that about me. You know, it's sort of like a, like a force of will. Like you're, you're throwing all the stuff that like, that has made you, you like your interests or stuff that you find interesting or personal stories or anecdotes, whatever it might be. It's, it's like that part that feels much more of like a real genuine identity than sort of like picking apart yourself and compartmentalizing the aspects of yourself and then like, like selling it to people as a means to like, you know, make money or like, you know, if you know what I mean, like you're, mm-hmm. I'll take this, like I was injured in a car accident and I'm going to sell this to you. I'm going to get back the social credit of people like flooding my inbox saying you're so strong and you're so brave and confident. But like with you guys, it's here's who we are. And it's like thrown out on the table, like, like all at once. And it's like, you're going to like me or not. Yeah. It's definitely a, a matter of like, of the, are you presenting yourself as an apology immediately or, are you looking for pity when you're like creating yourself? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately it's like speaking in language, which I think is, you know, exemplified by podcasting specifically is just like a failed attempt at trying to create the, you know, inner you or whatever that's speaking in your head. And uh, it always like comes out like not exactly what you intend it to be. And mm-hmm. that's because like you said earlier, it's like other people have, the power of interpretation and so like they end up creating your identity for you and whatever you have is uh just kind of like this like gaseous like myth inside your head so mm-hmm. immediately submitting to like the apologies to stuff and like whimpering like sniveling like i'm a white 19 year old cis male like i'm so sorry kind of thing is like just <laughs> you know it's sad you can do more <laughs> You can do better, sweetie. We know you can. But you yeah. know, I'm not so sure, actually, if they can do better. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, uh, it was interesting, like, you know, like, you know, if I will, uh, because I've watched Ava recently. and Yes. And what I got from it, it was interesting, because you remember the episode um, where they're they're in i think it was 25 or 26 where they were like saying to shinji like this is the you that uh asuka sees or this is the you that ray sees or you know there there's millions of shinjis but like you have to know who you are like all these shinjis that people know of you build who you are as a person but it's it's up to you to make you know who you are and take action you know to have people you know in shinji's case it was for people to you know for him to have the confidence that in the end people may not like me but i know who i am in the end yeah that's exactly it and this is kind of why i think it's so amusing that there was like actually like a a liberal backlash to evangelion recently when it came out on netflix because number one people were obsessed with the fact that Ray and Oscar are teenage girls. How dare they? Oh my god. And uh, they're sexualizing young women. Stop the presses. <laughs> Japan sexualized young women. Oh my god. Shocking. Oh my god. Crazy. Well, did you know that, you know, they sexualized them? They didn't. Have you heard of a movie called Uritsuki Doji? <laughs> 
And they they were mad about that, of course, but it was also they were trying to suggest that Evangelion has like an overall like conservative, um, like individualist tone to it, basically because of like Shinji rejecting instrumentality, which is, you know, the collectivity of every soul, like in one gloop and mm. emerging from it as a individual, they, they said is like a philosophically conservative notion. But to me, it doesn't really matter like what sort of like political context it has, because it's just as a beautiful message about <laughs> living in the world and being a human being and you having to manifest the power from yourself to, overcome the fear of never really being the person that everyone else sees you as. Yeah. And it's interesting how like, you know, in the end of Ava, when, you know, instrumentality is happening, it's this like nightmarish visions of like people coming together as one entity. But like in the end, even Shinji's like, well, this isn't what I wanted. Like even, even when he has like this, what he thinks is what he wants is so people will never criticize him. He knows deep down that like, you know, people may not understand him or like him, but the, as he's, I think he said in the episode, the, the very end of episode, the finale, mm -hmm. he's like, I want to live. You know, I like all, like when he's shattering the mirrors in the, in that room, like he, he wants to live. He wants to be him, like not this, you know, orange, loop of of humanity yeah the instrumentality like lcl like primordial tang or whatever it's yeah, like pr primordial tang that's that's perfect yeah. <laughs> it's just at the end of the day it's basically just what twitter is like slowly melting into like the the collective like the fear of collectivity or whatever is something that i think is just kind of ha like human instrumentality is happening right now it just is in slow motion basically it's in a boring and like just not in a like extravagant maximalist style it's in like people grieving about you know uh uh in insulting people it's like ugh. i want to where's the gloop where's the gloop where's the gloop I was thinking about the gloop again. The gloop is good. It's a it's a good one we got there. Uh, it, it just reminded because I watched the Drag Race finale last night. Oh, the uh, Drag Race finale was really gloopy. <laughs> just this, I I was watching it and like the crowd, those crowds of people with their masks and all their little signs and their glow sticks. And I'm like this, the first because I was drunk during it. I was like, these all look like crisis actors. <laughs> Like RuPaul and VH1 like captured all these people to like make them dance in front of a green screen jumbotron.
the second I saw you tweeting pictures of Tokyo Godfathers and you talking about your watching of everything that Konsatoshi has done, I knew I needed to get you on the show because you are not one of the like sniveling like women or gay people that have only seen Perfect Blue and think that they're Miwa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the case with Kon is like, like I don't blame people necessarily for only seeing Perfect Blue because Perfect Blue is iconic. Like it's absolutely it is one of the defining films of that like you know Japan exported to us in the '90s. Like and you know Madonna used uh, Perfect Blue in the Drowned World tour. I mean, I don't blame people for only watching it because it is fantastic. But you know, when you hear about like his other movies, like you know, for me, you know, I heard about Perfect Blue uh years ago because i when i was a kid i grew up on tsunami and like you i got exposed to anime that way you know and you see all the like right. big shonen fight animes like you know naruto and bleach and what have you but like when i was like on the internet people were like oh have you seen akira have you seen ghost in the shell and have you seen perfect blue like these are incredible and so like that's how perfect blue kind of got implanted in my head and then I saw this video, and I, I sent you this video is uh, the one about his editing from oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. from 2014, and I was like, I was like, wow, like all these things look really cool because this guy used clips from all of Cohen's stuff, including the short film uh, Ohio that Cohen did before he passed away, and I was just kind of captivated by you know what he was saying, like Cohen is this person who explores you know the the battle people have in modern society of like knowing who they are, uh, you know, perfect blue, you know, obviously with Mima and her identity with her pop idol hallucinations, but, you know, with millennium actress, you know, with uh, Chioko uh, struggling or recounting her like ma magical journey through film and her life. And it just blurs together in this beautiful story mm -hmm. Or like with Paprika, where it's this like visual assault on you know the eyes of this just fever dream of images about of dream worlds and you know a collective consciousness and it's like to me like that's what like latched on to me and so I remember I watched Perfect Blue on YouTube because for whatever reason Perfect Blue always is on YouTube. There's always yeah, a it's copy. always on YouTube. That's why I watched it too. Yeah, it's always floating around. And if like YouTube takes it down, somebody's got a copy like right up. And uh, I watched it there and I actually got the Paprika Blu-ray um, not too long after. Um, but I didn't watch Paprika until recently, like uh, last year. But I I wanted to get into Cone more as of recently because of like his stuff kind of speaks to the moment more, even more so than when he put them out earlier, like when they came out. His movies very much sort of captured the, like, I guess you could say play on words, paranoia of the time mm -hmm. of loss of identity or confusion of who you are or the escapism people try to do every day to avoid the horrors of today. His stuff really feels poignant now. And I guess it kind of is a coincidence that um, there's a company that has acquired the distribution rights here of all of his stuff and they're putting out all the stuff and it feels like there's a renaissance of him in a sense where people are realizing oh perfect blue he made more stuff after perfect blue like 
there's finally that like cool excitement for him outside of you know perfect blue but again right. like he his stuff really caught my eye i mean not only in sort of the story but like on a on a filmmaker level like the way he composes things or how he specific, specifically how he edits things where it's just he literally like whiplashes you to a new scene that you're just like oh wait i'm in a new scene where what where am i like it feels like if we, in a weird way uh it feels like how silent hill 2 makes me feel in oh, that yeah. uh to me like i use this comparison with games just because i'm autistic about video games is like <laughs> resident evil like resident evil scares you by how the gameplay is like tense and stuff and it tries to do it you gain control and you can like fight back or whatever but in like silent hill it feels like the game is always in control over you even when yeah. you think like oh like there's a quiet spot but then like in the game they like help pull off this like woman like moaning in the background just like oh fuck like i need to get out of here yeah and in a way even though his stuff isn't like overtly horror his stuff feels like he's in complete control and he's taking wherever he wants. And, you know, if it's like a scene, like, I guess, for example, like in Millennium Actress, you're seeing like one scene of Joko running uh, in like a, in a trolley. And then suddenly she's on a bike. Like, like how did that logically make sense? It doesn't matter to him. We're progressing through this story or this idea that he has. Right. Well, I think everyone who is, you know, at a base level familiar with him probably knows him best for, like you said, Perfect Blue and Paprika because so many Western directors like cannibalized um, the images from those movies yeah. uh, for their own. Um, like Perfect Blue is uh, referenced enormously throughout Black Swan, which I find to be kind of a shitty movie. It's like... Mm-hmm. Like, Black Swan to me is kind of, like, camp, and there's, like, some, like, interesting experience in it and just, like, the thrust of its, like, sheer ridiculousness and, like, Natalie Portman's gonzo performance. But, like, <laughs> it, it it is and really not as strong or as emotional or as frightening as, like, any frame of Perfect Blue. And you're so right about it being, like, a disorienting viewing experience because he constantly is moving scenes in a way that you wouldn't expect there's like people entering from like parts of the shop you would never imagine and it's all in this really gorgeous animation and especially i'm obsessed with like how him and his team animate faces because oh, yeah. it's really creepy yeah they they have like the weird uh doll effect they all look like little uh, plastic dolls and it, it, I felt that the most with Paprika and Paranoia Agent where it's like these they're really well drawn but they they just like they get under your skin just like the littlest bit it's like it's not really people yeah it's like and their eyes are like always like just vaguely bulging they're bulging and they're like blank in a way and the other thing that's funny is that like the way he animates like Japanese people makes them actually like look Japanese, which is really uncommon in anime. Mm-hmm. So he it has this uh, really sort of idiosyncratic visual eye, but his subject matter he chooses to approach is all like you said stuff about the terror of realizing and presenting your identity. And even though he 
has never done something that's explicitly horror. Like, the effect of even Millennium Actress, which is, like, a pretty friendly movie overall, is, like, still really overwhelming and uncomfortable a lot of the time. Yeah, it it has this cap- it has this quality to it where regardless if it's like something, you know, perfect blue which is like a psychological horror or the lame actress where it's this sort of drama or even Tokyo Godfathers which is like a straight up comedy, like the way he presents emotions and stuff is so like it's like pure but it's so like in your face that it's like you you can't help but like a stop you can't help but like continue watching but you also just you can feel the earnest like the sort of earnest quality like that he has for the characters or you know the movie he's making and i i will note this just real quick as i'm glad you brought up the the whole westerners like uh getting like upset about what like the western directors aping off him like because mm-hmm. i always see that argument like everywhere on twitter i've seen it for like 10 years at this oh, point yeah it, and it's, it, you know it was like that viral facebook image of just like uh shots of black swan like put next to perfect blue yeah because there's and there's also the the bathroom scene in perfect blue where in requiem for a dream they like shot mm-hmm. for shot did it and all these anime nerds are like like, I can't believe Western directors just uh, copied these Japanese film directors. Isn't that just crazy, guys? Like, I'm just like, I don't fucking care. I've seen, it is literally the same argument where it's like Perfect Blue, Requiem for a Dream, and Black Swan. They'll throw in Ghost in the Shell and Matrix, and then Paprika in Inception. I'm just like, I think, uh, it was, I think it was Gwen who put it best. Uh, she said, like, do they know artists steal? Like, Exactly. No, yeah, like, it's like it's good. It's like a good thing. Yeah, like, like people are seeing these images that they would not have seen. Like, and if you know, in this day and age, like with the internet, like everybody's talking about stuff, and they'll find out, like, oh, hey, Inception was very much inspired by Paprika, and I'm gonna go watch Paprika, and then you, you know, you get in, you love Paprika, and you're like, oh, this guy has other stuff. It's like a, it's like a, you know, a trail, like. I don't get why people were always so mad about it, but no, I, if anything, it's like, it's a, it's a really good thing because someone who is like interested in enough and like the imagery to like, go like, see where it's sourced from, like might actually like end up like cinema pilling themselves and like stop mm-hmm. watching like awful like, Christopher <laughs> Nolan. <laughs> yeah. One of the worst directors of all time. God, yeah, the image of her just the like one touching. Good thing he did is like steal from, yeah, <laughs> steal from Japanese anime because then you cannot get into it from there. So thank you, Christopher Nolan, for inadvertently uh, getting people yeah. like, into better movies. <laughs> exactly. No, I completely agree that it's like it's a good thing for people to be kind of like lifting and borrowing stuff, and I think it's especially good for like live action filmmakers to be. Like, looking at how, like, the stuff is presented in anime where they can do stuff that you can't do with a camera. And it would, if people stole more from anime, like, movies would probably look, like, less, like, static and awful. They, yeah, they wouldn't be, yeah, exactly. Like, with Cone's stuff, there always is, like, this, this pulse behind every shot. Like, he has a reason for everything. And if more, if more people, like, just aped off Cone, like, honestly... I mean, obviously, now that he's, like, passed away, like, it'd be a little different. But even then, if people aped off Cone's stuff and they used it for their own movies or shows, I'm like, 
I, I wouldn't care. This would be better than what we get now. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that will never be imitated, I think, is his sort of like misanthropy and the really bleak tone of most of the stuff that he's done with like the exception of Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers. I think basically everything he's made like leaves a really unfriendly taste in your mouth. Oh yeah, totally. Um, it's uh, interesting you brought that up because I, I was researching this and specifically Perfect Blue, for example, um, Cohen stated after the fact it came out, he was even shocked by the images in that. Like he was he was unnerved even by what he made. And But he even said like, if the movie calls for stuff like this, I will do it again. Like even if he is like shocked by himself, he would if he basically he would say if i got to make perfect blue again i would do it the same way i did like because the movie necessitated these like bleak you know terrifying images and stories you know to get the point across mm -hmm. and the imagery is shocking and there's so much like unique violence that is really just disgusting to have to sit through which mm -hmm. i i love because it's uh very rare for me to get like honestly like grossed out or like physically moved by anything but even like the first time i'm like, watching a uh, perfect blue on youtube <laughs> like on my <laughs> yeah. laptop it's like you see like uh mima like uh withdrawing from like the her other body or something or like the rape in that movie oh yeah the rape scene oh my god it's like all of and all of it is like this terrifying like hard to watch imagery but the real fear of it is the like psychological tension of these characters like losing control of their identity as it like spins out into this enormous monster yeah and like perfect blue has such like horrifying images like one thing like I noted when I saw it a while ago is like the blood looks horrifying in that movie. Yeah, I was it, just thinking that. It's like it's like <laughs> it's like this like thick molasses like goop that just pours out onto the floor. I'm like, oh like when Mima or not uh, Rumi when she gets stabbed on the the piece of glass, I'm like, oh my god. And she's yeah, it's like disgusting. And another like another thing is like uh, I watched uh, Perfect Blue like last month on Blu-ray and they include the original mono audio, like, you know, where everything's coming in like one direction, I guess. And like the screams in Perfect Blue from Mima is like, oh, it makes my like skin crawl thinking about it because it's so piercing and harsh. And it's like, oh no. Because <laughs> you feel, oh, no. you, you, like you feel like the terror that she's experiencing where she's she's literally losing control of who she is what she stands for and like she doesn't even know what's real or not i mean she's like having tea with uh rumi and she smashes you know, the teacup and like her hands are covered in blood and she's like is this oh good this is this is real because i'm bleeding right yeah like it hurts like it must be real and, but like she is like you said with the that face is like her eyes are just blank the, that when she's like uh with her hands all bloody and she's looking down at herself like smiling but her eyes just look completely vacant of any like mm -hmm. thought or, or personality or humanity even yeah it's terrifying and i think that is why i'm so attracted to 
to Cole is because he invokes his terror as a means of, like, saying something frightening about identity and having to be a person that presents themselves to the world. Because I can't think of, you know, any other director from, like, the last, like, 25 years, like, Japanese or otherwise, who is so in touch with, like, the unique sort of, like, terror and chaos of having an identity and what it feels like to have it misinterpreted and, like, the the kind of, like, whimpering weakness that people get when they can't, like, actualize themselves in the way they want. And uh, Perfect Blue is obviously, like, the, the really strong example of that. But, you know, Millennium Actress, which is, like, such a brighter and, like, friendlier movie about sort of, like, uh, the film history of Japan through this one actress, like, it still has all of these, like, really tragic and bleak moments where she isn't capable of being the person that she's trying to create and she keeps becoming like victim to other people's interpretations of her yeah like you know chiyoko and that like she you know she's trying to like find this painter that like she saw as a kid but she keeps like blurring the lines between all these characters she's played through all these movies throughout her whole life you know and they like she you know even though she's not like front telling like the the, uh, the director of the documentary that she's uh, being a part of she is like it's almost in a way of like the images of herself and the images that she knows of herself are like merging together and you know to her at an old age where she's like on death's doorstep you know to her it's this recounting of a tragic life she had but mm-hmm in a in a in a way for her that's like what life was to her is the chase and finding this this painter that you know always evaded her at every corner even when she like the one scene where the guard is taking away the painter and she's like banging on the door incessantly to get in with the key and you know to her like to her in the present day like and even as a viewer you you're not sure if like was that a movie or is that what she experienced like as a person and it's like almost like doubly tragic because she doesn't know if it was a movie or her real life and we as the viewer can't discern that either yeah and it's it's a really arresting experience to like be like so disoriented and especially when everyone is sort of trained by movies to be like handheld and like walked through like precisely like what is going on in this shot and what does this mean? And it's like the cut from one actor's face to the other's to show a reaction. And meanwhile, this like has like four, like 14 different eras of Japanese film, like colliding in a single shot as like characters are suddenly in costumes that they weren't before. And I think it's so bold to have like that disorienting effect. And um, it's a, it's a beautifully drawn movie too. Oh yeah. It's, if I remember, it was the last traditionally animated film that Cohn did before, like, you know, they introduced, like, computers to help animation and stuff. And you right. can just, like, sense it because not only are, like, the cut, like, even the, the documentarian crew, the Genya and Kuji, if I remember, I think that's his name, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they get dragged into her movies and her setting. And even for Genya, uh, he even 
Aiden like has his younger self because he worked with uh, the studio that Chioko worked for. Not only do they get pulled in and they get put into costumes and stuff, but even the art style like changes. You know, like at the beginning of the movie when she's a young girl, it's this washed out, uh, you know, uh, grays and sort of blacks and whites and only punctuated by her red scarf or in, in like the, the movies, you know, the the ancient Japanese like uh, fantasy uh, movies that she was in where it's even the the hordes of enemies are like animated like as, as if they're like uh, paper cutouts like in the background. Right. It's 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 honestly like what to me, it's his most beautiful film, even above Paprika, because the just the the maximalist visual style just you you get moved by the images and i think that's like the sign of a good director is like not only does the story or the characters or whatever you know is in that movie uh like all all this visual information is just hitting you in the right way yeah i completely agree it's i think it's his most beautiful movie too and my one of my favorite things about it is that it's sort of like a companion to perfect blue and that both of them Mm -hmm. like show characters identities getting like inflated beyond their control but um whereas like perfect blue is like really mournful and apocalyptic about that happening millennium actress kind of like provides like a, a way out which is like to use your identity and not like you know be constantly victimized but to create like art and like find meaning in your own like disastrous struggles like through expression and like this beautiful career in film exactly like they're they're great sister films with each other because like you said they 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 take sort of a similar idea of like when a person's put in the public spotlight and they're struggling to battle like who am i who am i inside but also who am i to the public you know but chioko and millennium actress to her it's like it doesn't matter necessarily for her it's like like a grand art piece for her as an actress you know her life and her movies combine as one into this sweeping epic of uh, different time periods art styles different settings and all this stuff and it's it's truly incredible and like the ending scene where she's in the rocket you know telling like going off to chase after the guy it's just like like i i was weeping at that i was like oh my god this is this is incredible yeah it's so beautiful and you know that kind of like goes back to you know what mishima's mission was as well which was to be able to use like his literature and his celebrity and his physical presence and like merge them all together into like creating life as a piece of art and i think it's a really noble sort of way to live and like the only way I can kind of imagine myself like getting meaning out of life is like being able to cast myself in like a great piece of art that was uh, being alive for the time that you are Mm -hmm, exactly like that I think that's millennium actresses like secret uh like the secret aspect of it that really makes it this incredible film and it really you also get a feel, a feeling that Cohn just has this love of film and that film affected him at clearly i'm assuming at a young age 
mm-hmm. where it's just like it feels like this giant overflowing of love of cinema to him and he just he has to give like everything out he can for the medium that he loves yeah and he gets every single like era that he is uh referencing like so tonally right like in like the earliest sequences it really like reads and feels like a film out of that period of time mm-hmm. oh breathtaking i love it Uh, I guess we should talk briefly about Tokyo Godfathers, which is my favorite Christmas movie of all time. (laughs) It's it's such a great Christmas movie. Yeah, I watched it for the first time with my boyfriend um, this Christmas. And uh, I think maybe thematically, this is not one of his most essential movies, but it is so pleasurable and sweet and charming and... I uh, I really love it as like a sentimental movie, and that's why I think it's the best Christmas film ever made. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I agree with you there. Like, it's interesting. Supposedly, uh, the producer that worked with Cone at the the studio that he worked for, he he went to Cone and was like, "I want you to have a hit, and I want to have people like recognize you." And so they came up with Tokyo Godfathers, and it. It does stand out because it when you see it amongst like all of his works, it's like okay, this is the oddball one. Like it, it, it's a comedy about a gambler, a drag queen, and a teenage girl delivering a lost baby. Like compare that with like Perfect Blue, P- Paranoid Agent, or Paprika. It's like wait, this is the same guy, but you still yeah, get. You should get, like, shades of him, but, like, the tone is so different that you do have that immediate, like, is this really him response? Yeah, like, but you still get, it's almost like his style has been, or his sort of worldview has been uh, adapted for, like, a more realistic sense. Like, yeah, his other movies and Paranoia Agent, they have this sort of uh, fantastical element, whether, you know, whether if it's sort of a darker, more terrifying aspect or you know a more whimsical journey you still get the sense of like the three characters in tokyo godfathers are like they still they have their own identity where they're they ran away from something because they did something that they're embarrassed they're ashamed by you know Mm -hmm. jin was a gambler and he ran away from his wife and daughter Hana assaulted the guy at the drag performance, which I love that scene. Yeah, me Just, too. It's like, at one side note, I like how in that movie, like the, all the drag queens are like, just old school style like man in wigs like they just have a little bit of contour, a little bit of eye makeup and lipstick and that's all they need. Oh and yeah, because when I was watching this, like this has one of my favorite depictions. Like a, it's like a very like friendly depiction of like gays. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's very like sweet and warm, but it also does like have that like a uh, encroaching nasty element, which like happens a lot in the bar scene. And I, Cone is really good at kind of like slipping all manners of people into his work. Like there are homeless people throughout his entire career, and he doesn't like look at them as like paragons or as like little moral stars, but like also as like equally like uh human, like dark, like nasty, like rude people while like still being able to find like a empathy for them. And he does the same pe- thing with like gay people too. Like whenever like fags pop up in his stuff, it's like a little funny, but like still very cute. Mm-hmm. And 
even with like like you said about like finding like aspects even with you know the fact that this cast is all homeless people like and they have their own troubles i mean miyuki has like the i guess you could say the most thing to be ashamed of because you know she stabs her father and runs away because he took the cat away but like you get a you you totally understand like her emotional like core and what she stands for and as well as with hana and jin you you completely understand where why they put this put themselves here and you understand that they're not like you know uh morally perfect and sound people like what most filmmakers would probably do with like homeless cast yeah. is like cast them as like beautiful saints that can do nothing wrong these characters have done something wrong or in their mind they've done something wrong and you get that but even then you can still sense that they're good people at heart and you know they're their own little misfit family trying to deliver this baby on christmas <laughs> It's so cute. I also I like I I love the little touches of Japan that he does so well like um the babbling grandmas in the street like <laughs> accumulating like more grandmas to do more gossip with um yeah. is it's, like such a familiar sight to me. Like I can look out of my window and there's like always like grandmas accumulating on the street side to gossip. Mhm. So I love, like, those little things of him or, like, the design of, like, the convenience store is, like, so perfect. So it's, like, immediately, like, nostalgic for me just, like, watching it. It's so sweet. Yeah, and I maybe you can speak to this more. But, like, what I like about Tokyo Godfathers, too, is that even though, like, Tokyo is the setback, like, he doesn't really go to, like, the obvious places of Tokyo. He's spending more time in these alleyways and these streets and these homeless camps or these parks that it, it makes it feel like a much more lived in place than if like he's like all right we're here at tokyo tower we're here at you know scramble crossing yeah <laughs> it, it like he gets this you you get a sense of place and you can sense like how these people live or the different like you said like the babbling grandmas you tokyo godfathers i think is the most like tangible of his movies like you can you know you've even if you haven't been to Tokyo, like, you know, like, through this movie, you know what Tokyo is like. You know what the average person is like. Absolutely. So the last of his films that we haven't addressed yet is Paprika. Mm -hmm. And I probably have, like, the least amount of experience with this, honestly. I watched it one time when I was really high in college with my friend, Mm -hmm. who insisted that you have to smoke weed to watch it, which was <laughs> very annoying. <laughs> People love to say, oh, this movie's so weird, you can't understand it unless you're on drugs. Uh, man, I've heard that so much. Now, granted, I will say this for as an anecdote, I did watch most of, most of Ava drunk, but I felt like that oh, being that's drunk amazing. for a movie is different. Yeah, being drunk <laughs> is better than being high for a movie, in my opinion. Because, like, being drunk, you can, like... I like I don't know like when I watched Ava being drunk I was like this stuff is hitting way harder than it should be like if I yeah. like when you're drunk you don't have like a sort of barrier to protect yourself from like any emotional extremes and right. like and I, it's just for Ava like I was just like oh my god like <laughs> I feel I feel everything that like all these characters are feeling because I'm off my off my rocker <laughs> 
<laughs> I know I love being drunk for movies. I think my favorite drunk one was a. Uh, the first time I watched Climax on my friend's projector, I was, like, oh wasted. That must have been an experience. It was, per- yeah, see, I was just immediately shitting on people, like, being like, oh, you have to smoke weed for this. It's such an experience. But you should drink for <laughs> movies. <laughs> <laughs> see, well, there's a difference. Being, there smoking is. weed is, uh, it's just, smoking weed just makes you feel miserable. Yeah, oh my god, I'm so over it. I, mm-mm. It's, a, it's the devil's lettuce for real legit like i i remember the one time that I was into it like at a certain point i was like i felt like I'm just like sinking away into my bed or my couch i was like is this what really i'm supposed to be doing yeah it makes you paranoid and then it makes you lazy and hungry and it's not fun and when you watch stuff even if you have like any motivation to it just is like a static experience it's like not cool at all exactly Ever should do acid. <laughs> I'm so popular is promoting acid for cinema watching. Yeah. Fuck weed, do acid. That's the <laughs> I'm so popular thing. I'll go on the website. Yeah, I guess um, Paprika. Very nicely directed. I honestly have like the least amount of thoughts on it. <laughs> it, Because I, I watched it last night and... What's interesting is that supposedly this is the movie Cohen has wanted to make for the longest time. And in fact, like he knew because he adapted Paprika from a, I don't know if it's a manga or a novel. I think it's a novel. Yeah. And he knew the author really well. And apparently the author gave him full creative control to do whatever he want. And from what Mm -hmm. I gathered a little bit, he kind of, he kept the sort of bare bones of it, but I don't know what he changed or not, but like, Paprika, in, to me, when I rewatched it, it kind of had, in a way, it felt like a sister movie in a in a very, not like a, as strong as like Perfect Blue or Millennium Actress had with each other, but Paprika kind of feels like a, like a little bit related to Paranoia Agent in the sense of people wanting to escape to their idealized dream world yeah. where they're happy, like in the case of um, Tokita, um he wants to escape to when he was a kid and you know they always say in the movie like oh he's a genius but he has the he has like the attitude of a child like you know and in the dream sequences in the movie when the parade is going through he becomes that toy robot that like of the amusement park that he went to and it seems as though paprika it's it's almost so much to take in because of the visuals and also just when the characters get like i guess corrupted by the dream the like collective dream that is forming like they all spout this like really uh crazy dialogue of like what's going on like those doctors are like just going on about this these weird uh esoteric statements and i'm just like okay like i'm going with this but to me it's Paprika is more like a oddly cautionary tale about not wanting to don't escape to the dream to like, in a way, don't escape to your safe place because mm-hmm. you're not enjoying what you're experiencing in real life. Like, and that's why it kind of reminds me of Paranoia Agent with a little bit more of a positive ending because, you know, the ending is to Paprika is like pretty ludicrous, you know, when uh chiba and you know her 
her dream self paprika come together and she's like that ghost baby that's like sucking up the the chairman at the very yeah. end it's <laughs> it's it's such a weird image and i never fully could understand what that scene was um but it feels as though it's it's telling people to just like dreams are okay like an individual dream is fine but if you and society want to like combine your dream world in sort of a safe happy place like you're not accomplishing anything you're just this is like a mass like a mass paint like a i'm trying to think of words to say like sort of like wanting to come together for like one's shared collective dream isn't going to accomplish anything you're just going to lose a sense of your like subconscious or your really yourself like yeah because you're molding together all these people and like you see like the parade is the obvious uh visual symbolism for that like obviously the 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 parade scene where it it kicks off where all the businessmen jump off the building. Like that's the iconic scene where all the people are like singing along to this bizarre song that I can never fully understand what's going on, but like, yeah, it's really creepy. Yeah. Like the, the moms become like the golden Buddha statues and the teenage girls are, their heads are just cell phone or no, the, their heads are cell phones or the businessmen who like upskirt them and their heads are cell phones. Yeah. And then like the politicians, like with giant heads, just fighting to be on top. It's like, it, it's, it's something. Yeah. And it's all happening at once. Cause it's mm-hmm. not like a series of vignettes. It's like people like constantly piling on top of each other. Um, I think Paprika's best, like worthwhile quality is that, it does, like, sort of provide this, like, psychedelic, exaggerated, and really creepy, like, um, reflection of Japan at the time. And mm-hmm. I uh, I really like its audacity to do it with so much, like, intense, like, esoteric flair. It, mm-hmm. uh, it's something that requires, like, so much, like, commitment and so many references that it's, like, I can't imagine anyone else kind of going so full-heartedly into their vision like that yeah it it feels it feels the most of it feels like his most japanese film because like i remember i saw like a video of the parade scene and like people in the comments are like oh this is a biting critique of japan at the time and like they're saying oh this this represents this part of society i'm like okay I'm, i'm taking a mental note of that but like it still is so much um Because, like, while the parade is going on, you have, like, Paprika running away from the giant little uh, girl doll, like, jumping through TV screens. It's so... I admire it for the fact that it is so upfront. It's so maximalist. It's so just willing to visually come up with interesting uh, imagery. Like, I will say, like, it does have one of cone's most uh terrifying images is when um i forget his name is it osanai uh the helper of the chairman when he puts his hand uh into paprika oh it's like, yeah that oh it like goes up her body and then he rips her like he rips chiba out of paprika i'm like whoa like Ugh. that that scene sticks with me and like you know it does feel like it's weirdly it 
it, it feels like a nightmare in some places, but it, and for me, that's why it kind of feels like a companion to paranoia agent is because it doesn't feel as nightmare, like nightmarish as paranoia agent is like paprika has like, it'll have these dark scenes, but it has like the story of the detective Kanakawa, like trying to understand his, his internal struggle with his uh, friend from high school where they're making that movie together. And he can never like fully let go of the fact that they split apart. But by the end, like he accepts that like he can still take action in his life, even without his friend. And by the end, he's like going to the movies again because he grew up, he wanted to make a movie and he was making a movie with his friend. Right. And then, of course, on the other side of the coin from this like kind of like beautiful, like uh, ultra bright, like else, like completely overwhelming, like color experiences, like the black and white nightmare of paranoia. <laughs> ありにみえしものがたい。巡り巡りてことはじめ。不石を拾い結ぶれば、英語回帰の無限道。解かれぬままの謎はなく、謎をはらまぬ回もなし。それでは皆さん、さようなら。Let's talk about the nightmare society. Yeah. I don't even know where to begin with this TV series. I guess I'll say that I first watched it way too young. I was like in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of looking and hunting down for like extreme anime because I was craving violence as a, as a, <laughs> as a teenager. And I had already exhausted like all of the stuff everyone knows, like Elf and Lead or whatever, like that kind of garbage. And mm-hmm. then I came across Paranoia Agent, and it wrecked me. Yeah, I, I only watched it this year because it was always hard to find a physical copy of it. And thankfully, they re-released it on Blu-ray, uh, I think, within the last year, actually. And it it's so bleak in how it views uh, just people in a modern city, like a modern life. And you it it has like just these images where you're just like left in total shock because it ends i mean almost all the episodes end with like the character of the episode like getting beat in the head by a kid it's like okay (laughs) yeah that's about as bleak as it can get yeah like and i think i think that's why i think paranoia agent after rewatching all this stuff, I think Paranoid Agent is my favorite of his because it's for one, because apparently what he said is that Paranoid Agent was the culmination of like 
a bunch of unused ideas that he didn't have for a movie right. and not necessarily like uh, stuff that couldn't get into a movie. It's just like he'd been building up these ideas and he wanted to like finally put all these out. And it, I'm just like, I'm wondering, he, if I remember correctly, he said in an interview, it was just like the way he processes information was through like the news, TV, the internet, all this stuff. But he, I think if he said correctly, the stuff that stood out to him the most about learning about what's going on is through people. And that you get a sense of that with Paranoia Agent because sort of the backbone of the story is how people spread rumors about the little slugger uh, attacking people, about how it can just spread like wildfire, especially nowadays. You know, even if this show came out, was it 2004, I think? Mm-hmm. Um, it came out a month, they came out the same month as Facebook, a year before YouTube, and two years before Twitter. And it still, it feels like it was predicting like how people will spread mass hysteria about anything. Like, obviously the thing I thought about is like, oh, remember the clown thing that people were par- terrified about? <laughs> oh, the years? clown thing. But apparently, I, I watched a video about Paranoid Agent and there was apparently something, just for like, I guess, context of the show is... There was um, a mass hysteria event in Japan in the 70s um, about this, uh, I don't, I forget the name of the, of this thing that people were afraid of, but it was this masked woman who had like a razor blade smile and she would come to kids and like uh, simply ask them three questions and no matter what, you either died or got disfigured like in this Mm -hmm. story and it got so much that they had to like have chaperones, they had to have police, but like there's no other, there's no incident that you know there was an attack from this like this uh, thing, and it reminds me a lot of you know little slugger is this being that is willed into existence by Sukiko, and it you know it spreads like wildfire to like you know Ichi the kid, you know who's like you know, this hotshot kid who thinks he's everything. But, like, the rumors, like, a oh, little slugger's like a middle schooler, and he has golden skates, a golden bat, and he smiles when he looks at people, just like Ichi, and he starts, like, going insane, like, thinking everybody's thinking he's a little slugger to the point where he, like, lashes out at, like, this kid who's running against uh, for class president against him. And Ichi just hates this kid so much because he thinks he stands mm-hmm. everything, like spreading the rumors and all stuff where he wants like this kid to be literally attacked by a little slugger, which does happen like suddenly, but that doesn't resolve Ichi of his like, just, you know, like the show is paranoia, like, and it ends with episode two, like having this terrifying like image of all, all these people in his life, like his mom and the detectives Melting, of the show. Yeah. Like melting blobs, just all like, like getting in his face and like just distorted, and like he's so fraught with uh, just anguish that he's like, "Please save me!" And then he sees little slugger coming to him, and like he's like grinning ear to ear that he's about to get hit in the face. Yeah, because it proves it's not him, and like the the series is basically just about what you said is that uh. A animator named Tsukiko, like, uh, sort of, like, manifests this 
I forgot that the translation calls him a little slugger, which is so funny to me. Because <laughs> yeah, they call him in a in Japanese, it's shonen bato. It's like a yeah. young, it's like young boy, boy bat. bat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, boy bat. Yeah, and it's a. Uh, she basically manifests him out of like a uh, fear and being backed into a corner, and instead of confronting her problems, she uh, sort of like physically manifests this like demon like absurd like child on roller skates with a baseball bat and as the series progresses it begins to spin further out of control with like these rumors and like mass information as you said but what i find really fascinating is like each of the characters that are at first kind of episodically introduced in the first half all of them are such fully formed, like, disastrous, like, horrifying people. Mm-hmm. And my favorite of all of the, like, uh, Shonen Bat victims in the first half of the show is, uh, I don't remember her name, even though I just rewatched it <laughs> this week, but... Uh, uh, Harumi? Yeah, the, I think the, Harumi the, and her alter ego, Maria. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, they, they, uh, she is, like, a like an office worker researcher and like does school stuff, whatever, kind of like a normal teacher. And her life is upended by this like disassociative identity disorder where she goes and starts hooking during the nights. Mm -hmm. And I am so infatuated with that because the kind of narrative question is like whether or not she's kind of willing it to happen herself or like if she actually does like want to be this like prostitute and mm-hmm. I, I love the images of her, like her going from love hotel to love hotel, like in her like melting makeup, just because I've been there so many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that episode is, I think, one of the stronger ones because it, I thought about this when I was watching is that he's almost like recalling, like in a way, it feels like Perfect Blue, but in a much more bleak set, like. Perfect Blue mm-hmm. obviously was bleak, but like this feels bleaker because, like, you, you the episode starts and you know there's like a clear distinction between her nightlife and her day life, but then like she manifests seemingly her her prostitute self through the uh, the answering machine, where it's the her other self is like saying, uh, "You can't let me go." Like you can't keep moving my clothes out of here. You can't take my makeup away. And it's, she, like, every time she tries to take it away and put it in the garbage, like, it comes right back. And, like, you really just begin to, like, you as a viewer are just like, well, like, who's in control? Like, is it Maria or Harumi in control? And it's, it, it culminates with that iconic image of her and her Joker makeup about to get beamed in the face. And I'm just like, oh, like every every image every time the show closes you know what that uh that i for me that like famous track of when he's coming to attack somebody it's like haunting like electronic noise uh song and it's just like and it just gets louder and louder and gets closer and they just like look to a little slugger and just the image of her like with her joker makeup just smeared everywhere and she's like it's i mean it's just haunting and then in episode four when that couple sees her on the ground and like part of her dress is like like coming off and she's just like passed out on the 
in the street and it's like ugh. like she she can't even like it it she couldn't fix it herself like she needed a literal like supernatural entity to like clear this from her mm-hmm. and i i think where the show starts to get its bleakest is that about halfway through it completely upends the entire structure and like reveals that both of the detectives are like in their own like state of psychosis and mm-hmm. one of them becomes like so fixated on like the case and his ideas about it that he like completely like changes character and after that episode the show like loses its episodic sort of like format where we were introduced to a victim every week and it just mm-hmm. becomes this like nebulous discussion of like every like psychological point of the series for like the back half and it was pretty funny watching these on like a like a go go anime site or whatever where they have like, the comment sections because people just progressively start to hate it like past its halfway point because they just don't get what's going on yeah i mean it 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 really i i would say it really hits that point like when episode 7 with maniwa where he's like in hit he's becoming so obsessed with it all like trying to understand like who is this kid and he's like in this his this room full of radios and this the static and this like distorted voice of him saying like you know he is multiple people but he is one being he will strike you if you're in the corner and it's fascinating how like he literally he becomes the old man in the show like that old man who's always prophesizing like the next episode kind of like right. how the the log lady in twin peaks prophesized or she like introduced an episode like this old man character he's like always like every time he's shown he's like on the moon in a suit and tie and he's like making these vague obtuse statements about the next episode and maniwa is just you know at the start of the show he's like this plucky like young detective who thinks like he can solve the case through science but he just slowly through the course of the show just becomes insane and he becomes this old man who's you know so disconnected from reality that he thinks by the end of it he's like a superhero defeating this like villain and he has to go on this quest you know to level up this you know in his mind the sword but in reality it's a baseball bat yeah and it's so upsetting to because you have like that basis in the first like six episodes of like oh like there's always going to be like the detectives to like have like that linear story to lean back on but when it blows it up the entire series just becomes so oppressively upsetting and Mm -hmm. i think one of my favorite iterations of that is with the animation studio episode who oh yeah yeah it shows the animation team like trying to create a modern me show and modern me is like the little dog that um Tsukiko has designed and is like kind of like a, her hello kitty character mm-hmm. and they're producing an anime around it and it becomes this uh really meta upsetting like completely impossible to process like episode where things that keep starting and stopping you don't know when things are actually happening or not until like the entire animation studio is like butchered and kills themselves yeah and leading into that it was interesting is 
uh, that episode where Maniwa, you know, he has sort of his breaking point. Like, that's the episode where they end with the copycat killer they thought was the, or the attacker. They thought uh, Kozuka, this, like, kid who's, he's also so trapped in his own uh, disillusionment, and he can't relate to society that he thinks is a holy warrior defeating monsters. Mm-hmm. Like, when Maniwa lo- loses it, like, this kid who's in a cell gets killed. He's the first death of the show. And, like, episode, the animation episode is, like, every, it's, like, they have those little cutesy, funny little Maromi cutaways where Maromi's, like, telling you what the, this person does in the team. And then, like, that team member is, like, killed two minutes later. Yeah. And it's just, it dwindles all the animation staff till this, like, this production manager, Sar- Saruta, I think is his name, like, to the point where him and the, I think it was the producer, like, basically the only two left in the team. And you think, like, Saruta is going to be, like, attacked in the studio, but he first, like, knocks out the producer of the show and wants to, like, uh, prove that he's not like a fuck up at all but on his way to deliver the episode of the of the Maromi show like he's having like little slugger chase him on a highway and he hears yeah. like <laughs> even he hears the 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 opening of the show that really <laughs> dreamland obsessional park like play on his radio and it's just like terrifying and it ends with him like being killed right in front of the TV studio, and the TV studio people don't even care. They're just like, "Is the episode damn? Is the episode tape damaged?" And they just like leave his dead body in the street, like in pouring rain. And it ends with just like the Maromi show, like playing this like cutesy little take thing. A rest. And it's just, like, take a rest. Take a yeah, rest. Yeah, take a rest. Yes, and the ER. It's like, okay. it's. it's it is like so blunt with everything. It's like this guy is dead, but like they just care about this cutesy little dog. And which is interesting because Maromi begins to like spread in popularity as well as Little Slugger. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. And like that episode with the animation studio is like the. You wouldn't get it immediately watching it because it seems so out of like left field, but. As, like, the show kind of reaches its, like, fever pitch at the end and the entire city becomes obsessed with Marumi and is, like, beating each other up to get, like, Marumi goods. Mm-hmm. It, like, uh, that hysterical level is, like, sort of, like, sourced out of that episode. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I don't know if it, I think it's, like, episode 11, the, the next one, where they have, like, you remember the image of the Maromi floats floating in the sky with like yeah. the eyes <laughs> looking down on like all the cityums. It is like it's meant to be like in the show. It's like oh, this cutesy little dog character is in it so cute, but it's like this nightmare little uh, little dog ready to like rain like judgment on the city. Yeah, and by the end, it's sort of like revealed that little slugger and. Uh... It's so funny to say that. Yeah, it's such a weird translation because, like, you can't, like, I'm assuming you probably know better than me. Like, Shonen Bat, like, Shonen Batu can't really translate to English, like, no, literally. Well, there's actually all sorts of translation problems, like, up the wazoo with this show. And, like, even the name is poorly translated. Mm-hmm. Like, they, I don't know why they chose paranoia because, like, the word, like, Mosul, like, means, like, 
delusion. And then mm-hmm. a- agent is also a weird word because, like, it implies, like, a person. But, like, it means more, like, proxy. So it's more like a delusion, like, a, a, a delusion for proxy. I don't know, like, where paranoia agent came from. But in any case, uh, yeah, the translation <laughs> is kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, like, yeah, like you're saying, like, it's revealed about Little Slugger and Maromi, <laughs> the, the, the truth behind you know, their existence and why they're spreading across the, the, the public is that they were both creation, they're both interconnected to Tsukiko's past. And I think yeah, that's... They're, they're just these um, coping mechanisms, like these um, coping mechanisms to help her, like, hide her identity and, like, shy away from the world. Is like inventing these uh, extraneous circumstances um, that then manifest in the real world and become black ooze and uh, kills, <laughs> like, half the city. Yeah, uh, like... Uh, Ikari says at the end of the series, it's like it's like it's like after the war. Yeah, I uh, I was really taken aback this time too because the intro sequence has like the image of the atomic bombs going off and like these like apocalyptic back sets that the characters are just laughing in front of. Mm-hmm. And I I think overall like the the statement of it looking like after the war is that like this aversion to strong identity and like to being able to present yourself and fight for yourself and like the shying away from it is like actually truly like the the apocalyptic circumstances that like leads to war and that whole sort of nebulous concept of people on mass and like their fear of interaction and fear of the other like as this enormous like agent of like terror and violence in the world i think is just so perfect yeah it's it's really incredible just how i think like one of my favorite things about like really great anime is that the endings are usually this clim- like apocalyptic climactic ending where not only is like the action extreme but also the sort of emotional stakes are they're extreme and like Sukiko, you know, because essentially uh, when she was a kid, she accidentally let her dog Maromi uh, run into traffic because she like dropped her leash. And she was so distraught by, you know, the fact that, you know, she let her dog die and she didn't want her dad to uh, punish her for being ne- negligent. And so she creates a story to sort of avoid responsibilities. And to avoid, like, yeah, like, just taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. And to me, like, that summarizes the whole show in that, like, the way I describe the show is, like, it's a nightmare society where people just, like, life can get so uh, extreme for people that they will just will into existence a, a being that will attack them so that they can not have to worry about their responsibilities. I mean, in episode one, Sukiko is, you know, she's she's not attacked. She injures herself, but she creates the little slugger character again. She brings brings him back. And, you know, it's because she didn't want to be pressured to make a new character for her studio. And every character has sort of like this extreme... 
uh, thing that is happening to them and like they can't deal with it at in any way to the point like they lose their identity or they lose the sort of thing they like aspects of themselves they had control in to the point where they need this made-up figure to attack them to in order to give them like release or you know comfort in the world and each episode just has this like terrifying thing like episode uh six with uh uh taiko uh where she uh learns that her father was like staring oh uh, god yeah peep showing her the and and that's foreshadowed earlier because when we see him uh hooking up with uh the hookers and stuff he always is like you have to call me daddy daddy gotta call (laughs) me (laughs) like the that whole like uh taiko and her dad is just like so it's like so sad but it's like so terrifying that it just spiraled into this like like horrifying reality of where she runs away from home and she's walking through this like i think it's like a tropical storm or whatever she's like walking in the rain and she wants a her dad's new home to be destroyed and then she wants to like forget about it and when she's attacked she wakes up and she has amnesia and she doesn't know where she is who she is and to the point where it breaks her father like he becomes a blank vessel for the rest of the show when he's shown and which is interesting because he's one of the victims of the copycat attacker like right his his life technically the way i saw it is like his life he was not experiencing something so distraught where he needed a release he almost like had to be punished even more. Like I would think he's punished the most of all the characters. Yeah. I think he is as well. And he also has like that arc about him uh, being like the male shonen hero, basically manga. And I love how the show just creates like um, all of these like ideal narratives that the characters are like desperately seeking after, but are completely failing over and over again. And Mm -hmm. the overall effect is at the end when, we have seen that, you know, Tsukiko, like, rejected the fantasy or whatever, but the world immediately returns to how it was in the beginning of the series, and it just begins to loop back, and in that, like, final sort of, like, prophetic um, bit at the very end when, you know, we're being told, like, it's just going to go again, like, this is what humans do, it is without a doubt, like, one of the most upsetting and, like, unfortunate endings I've ever seen to something. And, like, that extremity of feeling is... And that, you know, sort of just ferocious misanthropy is so absent. I respect and adore the series, like, on that aspect alone. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Because I'll add, like, in that final episode, like, because you think everything's going to be back to normal. Like, Tsukiko is, like, older now, and she's made a brand new character she even meets that uh as like a private investigator that was hounding her in the in the first episode and like they you know they bump into each other and like like he smiles at her and he goes on his way and it ends with maniwa writing in chalk like uh the like this giant formula essentially like the old man does uh uh because he's 
he knows something's about to happen again. And it just, it ends with that image of Maniwa having completely lost it. Like he's full gray hair. He's in this prophetic vision. He's on the moon, like the old man in the same outfit. And yeah, he's just saying like, things are about to happen again. And it has that like creepy static song that plays every time on the prophetic vision. It's, It's really depressing and really frightening that like, even after a cataclysmic warlike ending where half the city is destroyed, like they're going to repeat this. Like this is the cycle in which people do. Yeah. And even when you think there is an escape and being able to insist yourself, the rest of the world is always going to loop back into the, into the gloop. <laughs> the, the gloop. There's always going to be a Sukiko creating uh, a new being to, let the public escape uh, their life. And yeah, I mean, who they are. Is, it's so true. Everyone is just merely creating like fantasies of you know violence and inventing these reasons that they don't have to participate. And it's a warlike calamity that has only gotten stronger since this series came out like seventeen years ago. Yeah, it's. Like, you know, they always say, like, oh, like, this work is now more relevant than it used to be. But with Paranoia Agent, I'm like, we're living this right now. Like, people will escape to, like, corners of the internet or something to, like, validate, you know, their sort of existence. But avoiding sort of the the stuff that really needs to be done. Like, when I was rewatching it, I, you know, not to bring up Ava again, but, like, Ava and paranoia agent feel like complete polar opposites of sort of addressing a situation yeah where you know ava is about you know self-affirmation and learning to you know you know as they always say get in the you know pilot the ava like you got to do this like right learn to be who you are but paranoia agents like uh this is a cycle that will continue to go and you can't control this no matter how hard you think you know who you are or you think you can control things about yourself. It's just going to keep going. Like somebody's going to create a new, a new little slugger because they can't handle their life anymore. They can't handle who they are. Yeah. And we're doing it at such a massive rate. I mean, in like the last 365 days alone, like COVID is just a minor phantom when basically every single social movement or address to politics, literally everything going on is just like these, enormous like shonen bottle like phantoms that people use to live terrible droll lives and they're slowly like leeching out and infecting everyone with it so all humans are reduced to artless sludge yeah and there's no way it's, out it's what this series says it, it it's it really is and it, it of all like of all of cone's stuff like all of his cone stuff like is relevant today like I always say like perfect blue is still relevant today, but like paranoia agent is, is now paranoia agent is our lives. And like, you just be ready for like some sort of mass hysteria thing to like take us away from something. Like they'll create, they'll create something new for us to obsess over for like a year. And then they'll come up with the new one. Like, and all some people can do is just retreat sort of their idealized versions of, how things should be like 
I know with my parents, they're just like, this is not how things should be. Like everything was so simpler when we were younger. I'm just like, it's, it's only going to get worse. It seems like. Yeah. The only thing you can do is just accept, accept that the sludge is coming. And, uh, I think that's it. And try to make art. <laughs> Everybody, please try. Watch art. Do something. I don't want to get... Buy physical. Watch every movie. Play every game. Listen to every song. Please do it. Don't work. <laughs> quit your job. Just quit your job. Stay at home. Locking yourself in the room. Do it now. It's Zach I'm so popular and so sick with a sinus infection, but that won't stop me from bringing on an amazing guest today to talk about Kon Satoshi's filmography and identity. Who are you? Well, hello, my name's Fella, or Swift Zeros uh, in terms of username, but I'm glad to be here tonight. Well, I guess Hi, morning King. for you. What Hi. are you doing? I'm just here in my room. I got a one of the new fancy bang seltzer drinks you know talk of twitter i guess so have you heard of bang energy like drinks yeah, before yeah so it, they made their own really popular at the camp. yeah, yeah so, so they made their own.